0: Between the Liner Notes is sponsored by Bedphones. I listen to a lot of music, and one of my favorite times to listen is when I'm lying in bed trying to fall asleep. Until now, every pair of headphones I've owned was too uncomfortable for bed. If you lie on your side or stomach, sleeping with headphones on is nearly impossible. But Bedphones has changed the game. It's engineers designed a headphone that is so thin it practically disappears between your ears and the pillow. Now I can listen to some relaxing music or my favorite podcasts and fall asleep comfortably with my bedphones on. For more information, please visit bedphones.com.
1: Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. I sure hope you like the next trick because I was rehearsing this thing for so many years because, you know, believe me, I, I had no childhood whatsoever.
0: Vaudeville and was I, once I the, most the most popular government. form of entertainment uh-huh. in America. A performer, or vaudevillian as they were called, could be anything. They could be singers, dancers, comedians, animal trainers, magicians, acrobats, or jugglers, to name a few. The only rule was that the audience was king, and the vaudevillians always had to give the king what he wanted. Hi, I'm Matthew Billy, and this is Between the Liner Notes, a podcast about music, why it is the way it is, and how it got to be that way. The show is distributed by the Goat Rodeo Network. Although other countries had similar entertainment, vaudeville was a uniquely American form that grew out of minstrelsy, medicine shows, and rowdy concert saloons. You know when you watch a Western, and there'll be a saloon scene where there's
2: a big brawl and that sort of thing? That picture of what a saloon was
0: like is surprisingly accurate. That's Trav D, an actor and author of the book No Applause, Just Throw Money, the book that made vaudeville. They were
2: wild places and women, for example, in the Victorian era wouldn't be allowed in there, wouldn't want to go in there for the most part if they were quote-unquote
0: respectable. The stages of the saloons featured a variety of acts like banjo players, sand dancers, and, for the patriotic audience, mock military drills. But the core of these variety shows was always the dancing women, which, as you might imagine, other women were not interested in paying to see. Then, enter stage left, a few savvy businessmen who saw that half of the entertainment-seeking population was being ignored and recognized an opportunity. Certain entrepreneurs
2: figured out that, well, if you could have a show that was clean enough for women and for children, then you could sell even more tickets. Uh, and that's what they started to do.
0: Several people got the idea at the same time in different parts of the country. These new theater impresarios curated stage shows that were unoffensive to Victorian sensibilities, and women who had been excluded from the saloons attended these new theaters, bringing their husbands and children along. Ticket sales quickly surpassed saloons, and people were soon referring to this new type of theater as vaudeville. The term likely comes from France, but its precise origins are murky. Crystal clear, however, were the financial possibilities vaudeville represented as more budding theater entrepreneurs began erecting concert halls, often competing to build the most extravagant.
2: They're trying to outdo each other in class. And, uh, you know, a bit later, we associate uh, the early days of cinema with these fabulous... Temples, you know, sort of Egyptian themed grandiose palaces that sort of grew out of the the vaudeville theaters and, and a lot of our Broadway theaters today still have that same look and most major cities still have some of those old houses with the gleaming brass fixtures and red carpets and red curtains and high, high ceilings with murals, you know, with Baroque paintings on the top and That was the idea. And they were palaces for the people, you know, as opposed to millionaires. Everybody could buy their ticket and have access to this
0: beauty. If regular people attended vaudeville shows to feel like a king or a queen, the theater owners providing the fantasy were firmly grounded in democratic capitalism, not divine right monarchy. In their quest to maximize profits, the owners discovered that if the show never ended, they could sell more tickets. Continuous vaudeville was born. If you go to visit the Coney Island sideshow today, that's a
2: continuous show. What it it means is they open at 11 in the morning and they go till however late at night. The show would just keep going and would roll over. And so the entertainers might have to do 15 shows a day if they worked that grind. And so that was a new model. That's really a very efficient business model because the show never
0: stops. And so people are constantly being seated. Each act on a bill would only last about 15 minutes, and audiences could watch a wide variety of performances before they left. If you were to make a list of the top acts in the country, they probably all
2: would be singers or comedians, right? But your bill wouldn't be all comedians and singers. You'd have magicians and ventriloquists and dancers and acrobats.
1: You know, Mr. Channing, Ronnie was doing so well at your school that I'm sorry to hear that you're having financial trouble. Yes. We put on four public performances a year to make money. On our last play, Cyrano, we lost $300. Oh, well, that's too bad. Oh, no, it was our biggest success. The others lost more. <coughs> well, with four or five hits like that, you'll be able to afford to close your school. <laughs> well, we hope to redeem ourselves with our next play, which is now in rehearsal, Shakespeare's Othello. How would you like
0: to have your school make some money for change?
1: Oh, I certainly would. Why did you forget, Othello, let me put on a variety show. Variety?
0: Putting together a continuous vaudeville bill became its own art form. Done properly, the succession of acts could hold the audience's attention for long enough that they felt fulfilled, and then entice them to leave so a fresh audience could be seated. The first act typically featured animals or acrobats, and vaudevillians refer to it as a, quote, dumb act. They functioned like a welcome mat and allowed latecomers to find their seats. The show really began with the second act. It was the first one the audience actually paid attention to and was used to test out new, unproven performers. The third act was called a flash act, a big production number, maybe a dance extravaganza or a magician with an impressive stage show. The fourth act was designed to build upon the third act's momentum and increase excitement for the headliner. The headliner, normally a famous name, created an atmosphere meant to keep the audience buzzing through the intermission. After the intermission, the formula repeated itself, but with an important twist. In the second half of the show, a headliner did not go last. He would be the penultimate performer. The final act was deliberately dreadful.
2: They would book certain acts that were just really boring or terrible, which became, over time, nicknamed the haircut act, because you would see the the back of people's heads as they left the show. Um, They had acts like human sculptors or you know really boring sort of tableau acts or they would just book a
0: bad musician or something and and people would leave the haircut act ensured that no one would stick around for a second performance and the audience would refresh maximizing ticket sales audiences came to expect a lousy final act but in smaller theaters if another act on the bill was as bad as the haircut act patrons would make their opinions known
2: in some of the wilder neighborhoods and wilder houses, um, the audience could get rowdy and boo them and throw things at them. And that's kind of famous, right? I mean, that legend's kind of outlived vaudeville a bit. You know, it's in cartoons, and if somebody gets up and sings a terrible song, the audience throws rotten fruit and hats. And and most vaudevillians would have to come up through the ranks experiencing that before they got to the big time. In the big time, you wouldn't have that. They would be polite and the acts would be great, so you wouldn't
0: need or want to do that. Despite Vaudeville's cleaned-up presentation, many of the small-time houses continued to sell alcohol, and a bit of the old saloon-style rowdiness would creep back in. When a bad performance would incite a wild audience, the only way to calm them down was to remove the offending act from the stage. One venue, named Miner's Bowery Theater, developed a particularly effective means of act removal. Miner's Bowery Theater had an
2: amateur night, which was legendary because it was a place where if you won, it could get you some better bookings. But it was a really tough crowd. It was like with people yelling and hooting and throwing vegetables and pennies at you. And if you were quite bad, it evolved at a certain point that they would yank you off the stage with what looks like a shepherd's crook. I think it was a tool that they used in theater. You often have to reach up and, I don't know, move a curtain or fiddle with a light or something. And so I think there was this tool that looks kind of like a shepherd's crook, looks like a hook. Typically what would happen is if this audience was really razzing you, if you were sensitive, You might cry or get angry and yell back at them. But if you didn't have that natural reaction and kept singing and the place was liable to break into a riot, then they would have to yank you off with a hook.
0: Not every bad act had to be removed with a hook. In the same way people enjoy watching awful movies today, some vaudeville patrons would attend a performance for their pure enjoyment of watching a slow-motion train wreck. The vaudeville manager, Willie Hammerstein, the father of the famous lyricist Oscar Hammerstein II, had a particular flair for promotion and booked the, quote, worst act ever at his esteemed theater in Times Square. That act was called The Cherry Sisters. It was five
2: sisters from the Midwest, and they were just notoriously bad singers and kind of clueless and not just sort of bad in the quality of their singing, but their tastes were corny, Americana, sentimental kind of things about the evils of cigar smoking or whatever end <laughs> up. Uh, and so it became a ritual to go and sort of boo them and throw things at them. and but they were clueless enough that they thought it was positive attention that they were getting.
1: Effie is an old jade of fifty summers, Jesse a frisky filly of forty, and Addie, the flower of the family, a capering monstrosity of thirty-five. Their long, skinny arms, equipped with talons at the extremities, swung mechanically and waved frantically at the suffering audience. The mouths of their rancid features opened like caverns, and sounds like the wailings of damned souls issued therefrom. They pranced around the stage, with a motion that suggested a cross between a belly dance and a fox trot, strange creatures with painted faces and hideous mane. Effie is decrepit, Addie is Stringhalt, and Jessie, the only one who showed her stockings, has legs with calves as classic in their outlines as the curves of a broom handle. The Des Moines Leader
0: Confronted by harsh audiences and forced to put on their act roughly 15 times per day, performers used the immediate feedback of the audience to hone their craft and develop their act. They gave the people whatever worked, but what worked was often kind of out there. They had real categories for like everything,
2: including people who made shadow puppets, people who could fold paper into shapes, into, like, origami, like, you could make a house or make a bird. There were some people who were, like, only did something that nobody else did. And that's mostly what the the nuts were. There was a man, Chaz Chase, who ate things, you know, like pins and matchbooks and (laughs) and just swallowed things.
0: Cross-dressers were also surprisingly popular.
2: For most people were innocent of what cross-dressing might mean anyway, although some people would feel it was indecent if it were done in a certain way. So um, there were successful guys. The, the most successful uh, was a man named Julian El- Eltinge, but he went to great lengths to establish the fact that he was heterosexual and there was no hint of impropriety per se. But he would dress in female garb and be as much like a woman as possible, as an illusion, you know, almost like a magician. Um, and he would do uh, a Gibson girl, and he, he'd play all these different kind of types of women. He might be dressed like a Greek goddess. We present to you now by remote control that famous
0: artist, Mr. Julian Elting, female impersonator. <laughs> The camera cuts to Julian Eltinge dancing on the stage in front of an eight women chorus line. He's wearing a headdress that looks like a cross between a peacock and a Mardi Gras parade float. The gown is elaborate and glamorous. The bottom half seems to have been woven from multiple fox furs. When the dance is finished, Eltinge walks up to the microphone and addresses the audience.
1: Greetings, ladies and gentlemen. Well, here I am back in Hollywood making my first talking picture. I have had several ladies on the set and ladies around the different studios asked me this year as to who is making my costumes. I suppose that today Hollywood leads the world in the making of gown creations. Sometimes
0: performers found their niche acting out racial or ethnic stereotypes, particularly if they were a member of the race or ethnicity they were making fun of. In many ways, putting these stereotypes on stage cemented them in the minds of Americans. The most offensive was blackface, which involved covering the actor's face with the ash from a burned cork. History has not remembered blackface performers kindly, especially the white ones. But the performers themselves viewed racial and ethnic jokes as just another act, which wasn't meant to be taken seriously.
2: They've all passed from the scene now, but when in their later years, some of them were still kicking in the 60s and 70s, and which were theoretically more enlightened times, and so they would start to have these conversations, like, what were you thinking, what was that all about? And all of them would say, you know, it was nothing personal lighten up, we were just having a good time, you know. Some of the black performers really suffered because they had to walk in the back door of the theater, they had to stay at different accommodations, they they couldn't be booked as headliners. They suffered some real prejudice and hardship, but even they would be reluctant to say that there was anything
0: bad about it, oddly enough, for the most part. After the African Americans, the Irish and the Jews were targeted the most on stage. The Irish were portrayed as drunks, while the Jews were portrayed as greedy. I've come across very few sort of people portraying
2: Jews who weren't Jews. There were a couple, but... Jews are kind of famously funny <laughs> anyway. So they would just kind of do relatives that they knew or whatever. And eventually that sort of outgrew a stereotype thing, and they were just doing – being themselves and being people, you know. In the earlier days, it would be like Shylock, you know, and they would wear sort of payas, you know, the, the hair ringlets, and they would – rub their hands and be greedy for money and stuff. But later, it became real portrayals. And I think that's in the case of all of these ethnic stereotypes. That that's kind of what happened down the line.
1: Myself, personally, I'm tickled to death that Henry Ford apologized to a race of people with whom I'm very familiar. And uh, and I know why Mr. Ford was angry at the Jewish people in the first place, leaving the can to the out, you know. They were getting more money for second-hand Ford than he was getting for new ones. That's what it was. <laughs>
0: Regardless of a performer's niche, when vaudeville began, there was plenty of work for everyone. An astonishing number of theaters were popping up all over the country, and the owners had to compete for the best performers. The competition worked in the performers' favor. Among the top performers, that
2: competition would mean that their salaries inflated, uh, which was a good thing if you were at the top. The people at the top in vaudeville would make like $2,000, $3,000 a week in of a century and more ago, and that is a lot of money.
0: That would be about $65,000 today. The theater owners, who were referred to as managers, recognized that competition was driving up the costs of hiring performers. A few of them decided to try to eliminate the competition. Some kids
1: say that the world today is all upside down.
2: Today, we use the word manager to mean a performer's personal manager, and that's what we think of. But back in the day, that word was used to describe the CEOs of the, of the whole big vaudeville wheels. But mostly what other people did was to buy up uh, whole circuits of venues. And then they had the monopoly on the acts who would go in the venues. So those people included B.F. Keith, which is a name that many people may have heard or seen in their own hometown, because a lot of his old theaters might still have his name emblazoned on them. And then his right-hand man was E.F. Albee, Edward Albee, who was the grandfather by adoption of the playwright who just passed away, Edward Albee.
1: In my dreams, they move the bed, so I put down a
2: gold book. I think the story of vaudeville is a piece of the larger story of the age of monopoly, and it was kind of happening across the board in every economic sphere of endeavor in America at the time. Communication methods were growing by leaps and bounds, so you could sort of send a telegram to your man in whatever other town and sort of close a deal quicker than somebody else. And so you could quickly sort of snatch up properties and buy them. And Vaudeville eventually, it essentially became a monopoly run by Keith and then Albie. But for a while there, they were all fighting over those scraps.
0: Keith and Albie rapidly expanded their circuit of theaters, buying out their competition and building new theaters as fast as they could.
2: Most of the other major theater managers basically sold out to them. They would offer a lot of money. One thing they did to Sylvester Poley, who had the sort of small time in New England locked up, they heard he was going to build a theater in a certain city. And they just went and started building a theater of their own, like across the street from him. And he caved.
0: Mostly they all caved because they were really ruthless. Recognizing that it was impossible to own every theater in the United States, Keith and Albie employed another well-worn Gilded Age method of reducing competition. Like the sugar, railroad, and oil industries, the Vaudeville Managers formed a trust called the Vaudeville Managers Association. They formed a kind of a cabal. And so, you know, though Keith and Albee swallowed
2: up the other circuits, there's ways it was more like a merger. others kind of continued to have a place, to have a home in this new Keith-Albee thing. And the Vaudeville Managers Association kind of set prices for acts. So, uh, you couldn't go from one theater to the other uh, to get a better deal because they it was price fixing. They were setting the prices.
1: What are you arguing with me for? I got the right to argue. Why? Why? I want to know what you investigated my money in. As a friend, I will tell you. I investigated your money in the Mosquito Trust. The Mosquito Trust? Yes. I got it. the point time I knew that you could trust a Mosquito. What's the idea of it? The same as any other trust. To bleed the public. When well, I have investigated my money in mosquitoes? Yes. But how comes the profit? Ah, that's the point. You see, we got a farm in New Jersey with incubators from mosquitoes to lay the eggs in. Every mosquito lays over a million eggs at a time. Would you believe it? The last time I was up there, I counted over seven million mosquitoes. Now you can see in how a short time, we will be able to control the market. And if anybody wants any mosquitoes, they'll have to come to us and pay us our price.
0: The performers attempted to take on the managers' trust by forming a union of their own. But the union was mismanaged and lacked the solidarity necessary for effective collective bargaining. The managers were able to fix the prices they paid performers right up until vaudeville's end. Between the Liner Notes is sponsored by Bedphones. When Bedphones design their headphones, they recognize that everyone's ear is shaped differently. That's why Bedphones attach to your ear with a gentle, rubber-coated memory wire that is infinitely adjustable for a custom fit. Not only does the memory wire keep the headphones in place while you sleep, but you can work out in them as well without them constantly falling off your ear. Bedphones, infinitely adjustable, infinitely comfortable. For more information, please visit Bedphones.com. Through the Trusts. The managers created circuits of theaters for performers to tour around, often requiring long and tedious travel. It was mostly locomotive travel.
2: And if you're trying to pinch pennies, you're probably not buying a berth to sleep in. You're sleeping sitting upright in a locomotive that has like soot coming in the window. It's very loud. A lot of places wouldn't accept show folk. And so there were certain sort of rooming houses that catered to show folk. You know, everyone there kind of understands the drill, so nobody's going to complain about your behavior too much because it's mostly other performers. But the food might not be great, and the the towel you dry off with might not be so clean, and stuff like that. Uh, but a lot of time waiting in train stations, a lot of time taking the train. Probably most of your time is that uncomfortable travel. A minority of your time is the glory time on
0: the stage. Even famous performers like Groucho Marx and the rest of the Marx brothers were forced to endure this arduous travel especially when their careers were just beginning.
2: Groucho when he was a mere boy managed to land some jobs. He was a teenager and he wanted to go about this very seriously and he was a singer initially. And so as a solo he got booked with an act in the far west in Colorado. And this lady uh, stranded him, sort of took their money and bolted. He'd only ever been in New York, and he was stranded in Cripple Creek, Colorado, I think, which was the West. Um, And he was probably 15 years old or 14 years old. And so he, he got some money by driving a milk wagon and didn't know anything about horses or anything, you know. And the stories he would tell about how he got out to that gig, you know, with a shoebox packed with some sandwiches and hard-boiled eggs and maybe bananas that his mother had packed
1: and After the ball done by J. A an old man's
0: Before vaudeville songwriting was not a very lucrative career Even Stephen Foster, the composer of such hits as Camptown Races and Oh Susanna, did not normally receive more than $36 for his songs. The vaudeville stage provided a new outlet for songs to reach a wide audience, and as the popularity of vaudeville grew, an early version of the music industry grew up right alongside it. When audiences heard their favorite singers performing a song, the next day they went to the store to purchase the song's sheet music, allowing them to perform the song themselves. Roughly two decades after Stephen Foster died penniless, Charles K. Harris became the first songwriter to sell one million copies of sheet music for a single song. That song was titled After the Ball. The phonograph came along in maybe the
2: 1870s, 1880s, around there, and they became increasingly popular, but still not everyone had one. So sheet music sales were important, among other things, because people would play the piano at home, and home entertainment was big. If you didn't have record albums, then the only way your song is going to get out there is by live performance. And so they would have, uh, some people got their start as uh, so-called song pluggers, um, and they were actually sort of paid, a kind of payola, to to choose somebody's songs and play them. ¶¶
0: Accepting payment from a song-plugger to sing a song became a substantial part of a vaudeville musician's income, especially after collusion amongst the managers reduced the performers' fees. Sheet music sales boomed, and soon the music publishers had turned songwriting into an assembly-line-like system nicknamed Tin Pan Alley. The new industry reached its height in 1917 when 2 billion copies of sheet music were sold in the United States. Nowadays, the New York Times remarked in 1910, The consumption of songs in America is as constant as their consumption of shoes, and the demand is similarly met by factory output. In the early 1900s, a new invention called the gramophone made its way into American living rooms. People no longer had to see their favorite singers live to hear their voices
2: all things remaining the same, if radio had not been invented and film had not been invented, but only the gramophone and the big had been invented, they would have been fine because live performance is a different experience and they're still buying your records. There's still a financial transaction happening. But also, uh, there was an interesting effect in that foreign acts or acts from far away could develop a following prior to their physically arriving. So there were people like... Um, The great Caruso, the opera singer, had a following before he ever came to America. And Caruso actually played vaudeville.
0: While the phonograph increased ticket sales, other new technologies began chipping away at vaudeville's dominance. Throughout the 1920s, sales of radio skyrocketed, and Americans no longer had to go to a theater to hear their favorite performers. But the theater managers were determined to make it difficult for fans to hear their favorite vaudeville talent on the radio vaudeville towards the end of the
2: 1920s was already in serious trouble and radio was this way of broadcasting an act into everybody's living room and it was free and so there was a very justified feeling i think on the part of vaudeville management that that was competition and dangerous competition so yeah you were banned if you went on the radio but by that time the ones who went on the radio were really big stars and
0: if they were getting paid to be on the radio you know So what if I can't be in vaudeville? The managers reacted aggressively to radio and blacklisted any performer who went on. But their response to the motion picture, the technology that was actually the biggest threat to vaudeville, was the complete opposite. Rather than resist the technology, they began showing the films in their theaters.
1: (laughs)
2: when most of the movies were still 10 minutes long, which they were for quite a while, that's fine because you can actually put the movies on a vaudeville bill. But when there's a feature, that's the whole night's program and you'd still have vaudeville, but you might have fewer acts and they would open for the movie, you know? Uh, And they continued that with, when talkies came in, but talkies really were a problem because now you really don't need the live act. If you could see your favorite performers on the screen, it became cheaper for the people who own those circuits to not have to pay the $3,000 to Eddie Cantor or Burns and Allen or whoever and to just book their movies and you'd sell the tickets. It was really the talking movies that finally finished vaudeville, I think.
0: Slowly, the vaudeville theaters were converted into movie houses and venues for vaudeville acts were disappearing. Television programs like Ed Sullivan's Variety Show provided an outlet for vaudevillians, but over time shows like Sullivan's died out as well. The desire to perform in front of a live audience did not die, however, and the lack of theater stages meant the performers took to the streets and unwittingly founded a movement called New Vaudeville. The popularity of those street performances soon earned the acts a chance to be on a stage again, this time in independent theaters. In some ways vaudeville's
2: just kind of coming back because burlesque and circus and sideshow and in most major cities in america now are kind of have flourishing nightlife scenes where people perform the traditional acts in that way vaudeville is very much alive
0: Between the Liner Notes is produced by me, Matthew Billy. The show is edited by Ashley Lusk and Tim Townsend. Tim also provided the voiceover for the Des Moines Leader Review. Laura Vandever assisted with production. Huge thanks to Trav SD for being our guest. You can find out more about him and his book, No Applause, Just Throw Money, the book that made Vaudeville, by visiting his website, Travsd.com. Special thanks to Nathaniel Billy for recommending Trav's book. Between the Liner Notes is distributed by the Goat Rodeo Network. For more information about the show, please visit BetweenTheLinerNotes.com. And if you haven't done so already, please subscribe to the show on iTunes or whatever application you use to listen to podcasts. Also, thanks for listening. We'll talk some more on the next Between the Liner Notes.